And welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. And my name's Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. How are you doing today, Sarah? Doing all right, fighting the depressions. Yeah, it's it's sort of that time of year, just with like the sun going down at like 4 p.m., and... You know, it being super cold and being, like, stuck indoors all the time because it's both winter and also there's a global pandemic. Um, There's just, you know, a lot of things weighing heavily on people. Uh, And, um, yeah, depression is is tough. What about you, Ben? Um, Same. Oh, I'm sorry. That's okay. We have each other. And the listeners. And we also have our patrons. That's right, and we have a new patron to thank. Seven Gill Squid, thank you so much for becoming a patron of the night. Thanks, Seven Gill Squid. And patron Chris Freeberg just increased his donation from $5 to $10, which is really fantastic as well. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Seven Gill Squid. I do wonder, like, how many gills do squids have? Do they have gills? I don't think squids have gills, but I also don't... No, squids are strange. Yeah. I think they have, like, air sacs or something. I don't... I don't know. Yeah. Well, thank you in any case to both Chris, Seven Gill Squid, and our other patrons of the night. Right now, we are hoping to get to our goal of $150 a month by the time we reach our 150th week on Patreon. And we'll talk more about that at the end of the show. So, put a pin in that. What do we have going on today? Today, Sarah, we are watching from 1955, the first in a long series of movies we're going to be seeing from Hammer Films. It's The Quatermass Experiment. Emphasis on the X. That's right. (laughs) Um, And in fact, emphasis on the X for a few different reasons, one of which is to distinguish this film for SEO purposes from... (laughs) From the television serial that it's based upon, the Quatermass Experiment with an, an E in front of the word experiment, like normal. Yeah. Um, and I think, like, nothing shows how firmly we have arrived into the 1950s, like the fact that this is our first movie on the list that we are tackling that's adapted from a TV series. When... Were TVs widely adopted then? By now, it's TV's the thing. Like, we've already talked about on the show a few times, like, different movie studios struggling with, like, competition from television. Um, We are are firmly into what was... The television age. Yeah, what was long referred to as the golden age of television before we arrived in the modern golden age of television. When were TVs invented? In, like, the 1920s. Right. But they were expensive. and Yeah, they weren't um, practical until, like, the late 30s. And then World War II happened, so nobody bothered with them until the late 40s. Mm-hmm. But, like, we're into, like, 1955. Like, TV's a thing. Yeah. So Hammer Film Productions is based in the UK. Mm-hmm. 
1955, UK's television scene is quite unique. Sure. I think especially, <laughs> I think especially for um, an American audience, uh, where like quite a few of our listeners come from. Yeah. So we here in Canada mm-hmm. have the CBC. That's right, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. And in the UK, they have the BBC. Yeah, the British Broadcasting Corporation. And the BBC and CBC as well are public broadcasting companies that are like publicly funded with like tax dollars in different kind of ways. In the UK, there's like a TV tax. Mm-hmm. The BBC is a crown corporation. Yes. Well, Americans don't know what the fuck a crown corporation is. <laughs> That's fair. They said fuck to Crown Corporations back in 1776. Um, Crown Corporation means it's, like, technically owned by the monarchy. It's owned by the government. Yeah. Yeah. But, like, the monarchy. Yeah, but, like, the Crown is the is the government. It's not like, it's not like Queen Elizabeth II personally owns the BBC. <laughs> so, the BBC was first called the British Broadcasting Company... In 1922, then in 1927 became British Broadcasting Corporation and was mainly public radio. Right, yeah, of course. That's what broadcasting is in in the the 1927. Uh, They didn't establish any kind of regular TV programming until 1932. Even then, it was sporadic. If you were the one dude in the UK who owned a TV, there'd be like a radio announcement being like, next week there might be something on your television, so turn it on then. Yeah, it was like a um, like a half-hour program in the morning and then a half-hour program in the evening that was basically just BBC News, but mm-hmm. as a TV show. Mm-hmm. As Ben said, during World War II, nobody gave a fuck about <laughs> TV. Right. And actually... In the UK, BBC's TV division was taken off air because they were worried that the television waves could help bombers pinpoint where to bomb. Sure. So between 1939 to 46, there's no television in the UK. But between 1946 and 1955, the BBC has a fantastic monopoly on TV programming. Yeah, I think this is, like, the key thing for, like, an American audience to understand is that, like... There ain't no, like, 400 channels. Well, or even, like, in... Three channels. Yeah. It's still just one single channel. Yeah, it's just the BBC. There's no one else doing television in the UK at this time. Um, 1956, the channel ITV comes on, and so you have a duopoly. Yeah. But it's still just, like... What are you watching tonight? Channel 1 or Channel 2? And that's how it was in Canada for a long time, too. We had CBC or we had CTV. You basically had the government-funded channel and the corporate channel. And that was... Was it called corporate television? No, it's it's Canadian television. I know. I was trying to be be funny, Ben. In the UK, ITV is independent television. Yeah. Which you might as well just be calling your channel not the BBC. NBBC? No. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Anyways, the point is is that there's only one game in town, and it's the BBC. The Quatermass Experiment was a six-part science fiction serial that ran over the summer in 1953 on the single-channel BBC, 
And I'll just remind people that in the early 50s, at least in the States, we have UFO and alien fears. Mm-hmm. Um, best seen and also discussed by us in episode 154 on The Thing from Another World in 1951. I guess that's a little bit of a spoiler that the Quatermass experiment is about aliens. Yeah, but I mean, like, we're going to figure that out pretty soon It's been here. 70 years. Yeah, it's fine. So, science fiction, as far as the BBC was concerned, up to 1953, was mainly for children. Mm-hmm. It was only considered serious adult science fiction when it was adapting literary works, similar to how we've seen horror mm-hmm. kind of evolving since its inception. Yeah, for sure. As of 1953, the most notable examples of science fiction on the BBC would have been the adaptation of the Russian 1920 play R.U.R. Rossum's Universal Robots. Yeah, um, that play and also presumably these adaptations in 1938 and 1948 are the reason why we have the word robot. Yeah, robot comes from uh, R.U.R., the play. The other notable example of science fiction is uh, the 1949 adaptation of H.G. Wells's novella, The Time Machine. Okay, sure. So literary adaptations are okay, otherwise mm. it's for children. Right. That all changed with the introduction of actor-writer Nigel Neal to the BBC. Born in 1922 as Thomas Nigel Neal... His family moved to the Isle of Man when he was only six years old. Ah, he's Manish. I thought it was called Manx. Like M-A-N-X. Yes, I'm just being funny. (laughs) (laughs) I just always think it's funny if people from the Isle of Man are only, you know, (laughs) Man-ish. His father owned and edited the local newspaper... And like many writers we've covered on the show, Neil first became a lawyer. Bored with this vocation, though, Neil attempted to join the army at the start of World War II, but was considered unfit for duty due to his photophobia. It, what? His fear of light? Yes. So, <laughs> it's not it's not like in the way that like I have arachnophobia where I'm scared of like spiders or arachnids or whatever. Uh-huh. This photophobia describes an abnormal reaction to light, almost like an oversensitivity. Huh. Unable to turn to combat to relieve his boredom, Neil <laughs> turned to writing. <laughs> Safer. After a public reading on the BBC radio in 1946 of his short story Tomato Cane. Neil was bitten by the acting bug. Mm. He enrolled at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art, and his writing continued, as did readings on the BBC radio throughout the 40s. And this is about when he decided that his public name would be Nigel, though family would still call him, like, Tom. Sure. In 1950, a collection of Neil's work titled Tomato Cane and Other Stories won the Somerset Mom Award. Having much more success with writing than acting, Neil decided to write full-time. And specifically, his ambitions took him to television. Mm. His first script credit was on the 1950 BBC radio drama The Long Stairs. And he impressed Michael Berry, who was head of drama at the BBC. Mm -hmm. So Berry decided to give Neil an interview. In this job interview, Neil 
criticize the BBC television output as too sedate, slow, and boring. Ah, I mean, I think that's been a long-standing criticism of the BBC. (laughs) Now, Neil was not the only person frustrated with BBC television. Director Rudolf Cartier held similar grievances, um, and shared those grievances also in an interview with Michael Berry. So Berry hired them both to put their vision of exciting TV to work. Now, Cartier had worked previously with Michael Berry, which is why he got the interview in the first place, and maybe why Berry was also more open to hearing about this different kind of uh, approach to television. Neil and Cartier's first project together was the drama Arrow to the Heart, which was adapted from the 1950s German novel Unruhig Nacht, uh, Restless Night. Now, Neil was hired to make the dialogue less German. Okay, sure. So he wasn't, like, fully a writer on there, but that was um, where he and Cartier first met. Sure. The next major project was the Quartermass Experiment, which Neil wrote and Cartier directed. In the Quartermass Experiment... A spaceship was launched from Earth, carrying the first humans to space. Um, Professor Bernard Quartermass, who spearheaded the project, is anxious as the spaceship, thought lost, returns to Earth. Of the three crewmen who launched, two are missing, and the third, Victor Caroon, is in critical condition. There are journalists and Scotland Yard involved, um, Karun is at one point kidnapped by foreign agents because of, like, Cold War... Reasons. And he has, like, secrets of space, blah, blah, blah. Um, these agents discover <laughs> Karun has absorbed the two other men's consciousness thanks to an alien infecting him, and Karun is slowly evolving into a plant-like alien being. Karun escapes the agents and is chased by Scotland Yard through London. Um, Quartermass has gotten has received some samples of Karoon, and he, upon studying them, realizes that alien Karoon could end life on Earth as we know it if he is able to essentially spore. Sure. Like like a mushroom. Yeah. Uh, Karoon, who is now more alien than man, has become cornered at Westminster Abbey. Quartermass gets to him, and uh, tries to convince the consciousness of the three crewmen within the alien to turn on him, basically by appealing to the last bits of their humanity. Mm -hmm. And thus the alien is destroyed. Yeah, because it kills itself. Basically, yep. Mm -hmm. This was, like, heckin' huge. Brits spilling their tea all over the place. They just fucking loved this shit. And... The Quartermass Experiment is seen as the beginning of modern commercial British television. Yeah, I mean, I know it was a huge hit, and I've, you know, heard stories of, like, you know, pubs closed down so that people could go home and watch it and stuff. And I feel like, you know, not to take anything away from it at all, I feel like that's when that there was only one channel on TV at the time uh, context setting also becomes important. Yeah, so, because it's a television show, there's no, like, box office numbers. Right. But it's estimated that the show, over, like, the six weeks that it aired, because um, it was, like, serialized, uh, there were an average of 3.9 million people tuning in for the whole series, 
with around 5 million people tuning in just for the finale. Cool. Neil and Cartier would collaborate again on adapting Wuthering Heights in December 1953, an adaptation of Orwell's 1984 in the following year, which was also heralded as a great adaptation and piece of television. Um, Also kind of seen as, like, reinvigorating the interest in George Orwell's works. Sure. After 1984, uh, Neil would be involved on a couple of other projects. Um, The one that I wanted to make sure to mention was The Creature in January 1955 about the abominable snowman, an original script by him. But the two would come back again in October 1955 for Quartermass 2. In fact, the Quartermass experiment and the character of Professor Bernard Quartermass was so popular that there are several sequels. So we have Quartermass 2 in 1955, Quartermass and the Pit, um, which aired uh, December 1958 to January 1959, and Quartermass, also known as Quartermass 4, which aired in 1979. Wow, that's a big gap before the fourth one. Yeah. In each one, the character Quartermass is facing off aliens Mm -hmm. in different scenarios. Sure. The actor who played Quartermass, uh, Reginald Tate, he died while preparing for the sequel, like Quartermass 2, so he's basically replaced. Gotcha. Um, Because what's neat is Professor Quartermass is an older dude. It's not like a young hero. Right, yeah, absolutely. Young strapping hero in the the United States. Yeah, he's like an older, like... You know, less of he's not really like an action hero type. He's like an older scientist. Yeah, guy. he's played by like a different actor every time, right? On the TV shows. Yes, he is. Now, if the three sequels weren't sign enough that this was a huge <laughs> success, um, the Quartermass experiment inspired further science fiction programs, including Doctor Who, which um, one journalist described as a spiritual successor. To the Quartermass Experiment, and um, <laughs> and Nigel Neal uh, <laughs> criticized Doctor Who for ripping off his own ideas. Yeah, yeah. Which like, is like, I don't know about that, my guy. Yeah. But like, okay, whatever. Now, um, I don't want to paint the impression that Neal wasn't su- successful, because that's not the case. Um, Neil and Cartier together were seen as revolutionizing what was possible in television. They both had long and productive careers, um, ebbing and flowing as, you know, a normal career would. Cartier would pass away at 90 years old in 1994. Damn, good run. Yeah, um, he, uh, in 1957, he won a, uh, basically the equivalent of a BAFTA for his work in the, uh, dramatic programming in opera. Okay. Which is really cool. Um, Neil passed away in 2006 at 84 years old. Um, He had twice been nominated for BAFTA's Best Screenplay Award. And in 2000, he received a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Horror Writers Association. Cool. So the story of the film version of the Quatermass Experiment is wrapped up in the story of Hammer Film Productions. And since this is the first Hammer film that we are covering for the show, I'm going to go into that story in some detail. Uh, It begins with a man named William Hines. Really not someone named William Hammer? Yeah, I'll get there. Okay. (laughs) Born in 1887, Hines and his brother Frank ran Hines Jewelers. 
After World War I, the two brothers split up. Frank continued F. Heinz, uh, the jewelry company that still operates today, while William diversified, buying music halls and theaters, and leading a performing troupe called Wilhammer's Players, uh, that being the name that Heinz performed comedy under, named for Hammersmith, which is the area where he lived. The success of the theaters led Hines in 1934 to form his own motion picture company, Hammer Productions, which he founded with Spanish cinema owner Enrique Carreras. Their first film was a comedy entitled The Public Life of Henry IX. Oh, doesn't that have uh, Charles Lawton? No, you're thinking of The Private Lives of Henry VIII, the historical drama that Charles Lawton did. The title of this movie is a joke on that. Okay. The public life of Henry the Ninth. So I'm supposed to... Wait, was there a Henry... No. There wasn't a Henry the Ninth, no. was there? No. That should have been my first clue. <laughs> By 1937, after producing five pictures, Hammer was bankrupt. Oh, no. But the distribution arm of the company, Exclusive Films, continued to distribute other people's movies, even after the production arm closed down. Enrique's son, James, joined Exclusive in 1938, followed by William's son, Anthony. Oh, it's like a multi-generational thing! Both James and Anthony fought in the military, but after demobilization, they returned to Exclusive Films and resurrected Hammer to once again serve as the company's production arm, with an eye toward making quota quickies. Hammer's typical production model was to buy the rights to BBC radio productions very cheaply and make movie versions. Hammer discovered that renting studio time from, you know, the big guys was far too costly, leading them to purchase the Manor House Down Place on the banks of the Thames, which they then remodeled uh, into a custom studio space called Bray Studios. But it's just a big house. Yeah. Yeah, they basically just, like, hollowed out a mansion and made the inside into a studio. But, like, it's just a big house. Because it was cheaper for them to buy a mansion than <laughs> rent studio time. In 1951, Hammer signed a four-year deal with American producer Robert Lippert to essentially exchange products. So Lippert would distribute Hammer films in the U.S. and vice versa. In those days, any American picture showed in the U.K. had to be paired with a British second feature... And so by doing this, Lippert and Hammer controlled both halves of the double bill and thus took home a greater percentage of the box office receipts. Mm -hmm. It was Lippert who insisted that each Hammer film have an American star in order to increase box office appeal in the U.S. Hammer produced its first two science fiction films in 1953, a mad scientist flick called Four-Sided Triangle, and a rocket ship movie called Spaceways, both directed by Terence Fisher, who had started with Hammer in 1951. Do you know why it's called Four-Sided Triangle? No, I haven't seen it. Maybe it means like a three-dimensional triangle, like basically a pyramid? Because then you have yeah, yeah. three sides and then the bottom? Yeah, I don't know. It's a mad <laughs> scientist movie. Maybe it just means something weird and inexplicable. <laughs> Upon watching the Quatermass experiment on the BBC, Anthony Hines was very excited to get hold of the film rights. The BBC was also very excited to sell the film rights to producers, um, and they had actually originally turned to a lot of the big-name studios first, um, but they were turned down because the studios believed that the concept was certain to get an X rating from the BBFC. 
Now, the British Board of Film Censors had replaced the H for horrific rating in 1951 with X for extremely graphic. And just like today, there was sort of a feeling that movies rated at the high end of the scale were box office risks. The X rating meant that no persons under 16 were allowed to be admitted to the theater at all. It greatly reduces, like, the scope of your audience. Exactly. However, Hammer had noted the success of La Diabolique, which had been released with the X rating in the UK. When was Diabolique? 1954. So the previous year. Okay. And so Hammer decided to not only be unafraid of the rating, but to actively seek it out. (laughs) And they purchased the film rights to the Quatermass Experiment for 500 pounds. Now, um, as a staff writer for the BBC, Nigel Neal's work was owned outright by the BBC at the time. So he had no say over the film being adapted. When the film rights were sold, he got no additional payments for the movie. When the movie made money, he wasn't getting any residuals on that. Um, All of which was something he was very, very resentful over for a long time. Um, Following the making of the movie, he insisted the BBC give him copyright to his work uh, in future occasions. So he had the rights to, like, Quatermass 2, for example. Um, And he was still kind of pissed off at the BBC for a long time until they paid him a £3,000 gratuity in 1967. (laughs) American writer Richard Landau, who had written Spaceways for Hammer was chosen to adapt the series into a screenplay, condensing the three hours of the television series into a two-hour script. Uh, For example, the opening 30 minutes of the TV version are covered in the first two minutes of the film. On instruction by the producers at Hammer, the horror elements of the story were played up. Additionally, the American audience was appealed to by making the space program that launches the rocket a transatlantic one instead of a British one. Uh, numerous side characters were deleted or made like less significant, and the character of Professor Quatermass was made into an American and more of an action hero type than the thoughtful British scientist. Uh, the idea of the creature absorbing the memories and personalities of the people that it killed was dropped, and the ending was changed from talking the creature into killing itself by appealing to its humanity to Quatermass electrocuting it to death. You're spoiling the whole movie, Ben. Yeah, we're going to do that anyways in like 10 minutes when we give a plot (laughs) summary. As you might imagine, Nigel Neal was not happy about any of these changes. Val Guest, who was born Valmond Grossman in 1911, was brought on by Hammer to direct the film, having started with the company the previous year and directing six pictures for them since then. His initial career was as an actor, uh, but uh, eventually he moved into writing guest was the London correspondent for The Hollywood Reporter in the early 1930s, but he became a screenwriter when a filmmaker who was upset by Guest's reviews of his movies challenged Guest to write his own screenplays. Dope. Guest wrote the successful comedy No Monkey Business in 1935 and became a staff writer at Gainsborough Pictures working on comedies. His first film as a director was the 1942 short film The Nose Has It, a PSA about the dangers of spreading infections. Huh. His first feature film was made the next year, and he mostly remained in the genre of comedies. His first film for Hammer was a Robin Hood picture called The Men of Sherwood Forest. 
Given his history with comedies, Guest was reluctant to take the job directing Quatermass, but his wife, American actress Yolanda Donlan, persuaded him to do so. I mean, we've seen cases of comedy directors doing really well with horror. That's true. Guest felt that the only way to make the story work was to be as believable as possible, and so he decided to shoot the film in like a documentary or newsreel kind of style. Um, not like structurally, like it's still like just a fiction film, but just yeah. in terms of like the camera work and, and directing and stuff like that. Kind of like Thing from Another World, where it was very like cinema verite. Yes, cinema verite is exactly what he was going for. Guest did rewrites on the script, cutting 30 pages and rewriting Quatermass's dialogue to suit American actor Brian Donlevy, who had been brought in by Lippert to play the part of Quatermass. Is this a were-that-it-were-so-simple situation of, like, <laughs> we'll just change it to it's complicated? Yeah, pretty much. The BBC had final approval on the script, and so they insisted on scenes featuring BBC announcers to be rewritten by an actual BBC writer in order to properly fit the BBC style. And much to his indignation, they chose Nigel Neal to do this work. <laughs> American actor Brian Donlevy was mostly known for his, like, tough guy roles. He was born in 1901 in Ohio, and he had small roles in silent films in the early 1920s before becoming successful on Broadway in the late 20s and early 30s. He began appearing in sound films in 1935, developing a career as a B-leading man. His appearance in Bo Jest in 1939 earned him a Best Supporting Actor nomination, and he appeared in a very large number of films noir in the 1940s. But by the 50s, his career was in decline. He was suffering from alcoholism at the time, but Guest kept him sober during the shoot, finding him easier to work with that way. Neil hated Don Levy as Quatermass, and indeed hated the reimagining of Quatermass's entire character. Popular British actor Jack Warner was loaned to Hammer by the Rank Organization for the film, appearing as Inspector Lomax. Warner was most well-known to British audiences for his role as policeman George Dixon in the film The Blue Lamp in 1950 and the TV series Dixon of Doc Green from 1955 to 1976. Marja Dean was cast as Judith Caroon, whose role was greatly lessened from the series, she was another American actress. Uh, she was a former beauty model and the girlfriend of 20th Century Fox studio chief Spiros Skouras. And I guess he wanted his mistress to be in movies, but not, you know... His movies. Hollywood movies. Yeah. He's going to get her into pictures, just not pictures that the American tabloids would know about and pay attention to. So Lippert cast her in the movie as a favor to Skouras. Uh, she couldn't do a British accent successfully, so all of her lines were dubbed. Oh, no. To create a realistic effect when shooting, Guest had the cameraman employ handheld camera, which was a very unusual technique for British film at the time, and the technicians were, like, not really happy about it. Uh, he also had the actors deliver their lines quickly and overlapping in their dialogue to create the feel of actual real conversation. A little bit of an Orson Welles influence there, maybe? Hmm. The film was shot from October to December 1954 on location and at Bray Studios for £42,000, um, which would be about $1.8 million today, or 
$150,000 in U.S. money at the time, a low budget even for a Hammer picture back then. Makeup artist Phil Leakey worked with cinematographer Walter Harvey to create actor Richard Wordsworth's transformation into the alien creature by using lighting and camera angles as well as Wordsworth's own gaunt features to enhance the makeup, which was created using latex and liquid rubber. It was agreed by all involved that the makeup should make Karoon look pitiful rather than ugly. Les Bowie, an expert in matte work, was hired to create the film's special effects, including the final creature. Bowie built the monster from tripe and rubber, but it was kept off-screen as much as possible, uh, partly to not give away the low budget, and also due to concerns about how horrific it was that were expressed by the BBC. James Bernard, a BBC radio composer, was hired to create the film's score, his first time scoring a motion picture, pioneering the use of atonal strings to create a sense of menace. The score was considered a key factor to the film's like overall effect, and Bernard became Hammer's main composer thereafter. That's cool, and a very modern approach to scoring something. Yeah, predating um, Psycho, which was like the big breakthrough of that kind of scoring. So, as expected, the film received an X rating from the BBFC, only the 12th film to do so since 1951. And as we mentioned previously, Hammer decided to play this up by spelling the title Experiment, with no E at the start, and heavily promoting the film's graphic content. They sold it with taglines like, X is not an unknown quantity, and (laughs) Exploit the Excitement. Oh, boy. It was released on August 26th, 1955, timed to coincide with the airing of the television sequel, Quatermass 2, on the BBC. So the movie version came out first, and then the TV sequel came out. The film was released in the UK on a double bill with French film noir Rafifi, and it was the most successful double bill in the UK in 1955. Damn. Giving Hammer a much-needed box office hit as the company's B-pictures were struggling with competition from television at the time. In the U.S., the film's success attracted the attention of United Artists, to whom Lippert sold the rights for $125,000. They retitled the film The Creeping Unknown and cut four minutes of expository scenes. Only four minutes. That's, uh, that's pretty good. They released the film on a double bill with an indie horror film called The Black Sleep, which was directed by Reginald LeBorg and starred Basil Rathbone, Akeem Tamaroff, Lon Chaney Jr., John Carradine, Bella Lugosi, and Tor Johnson. This double bill was released in the United States in June 1956 and was so successful that United Artists offered to co-produce the movie sequel to Quatermass. And Hammer gained a foothold in the U.S. market strong enough that they no longer needed Lippert as, like, an intermediary. The film received positive reviews from critics in the U.K., uh, proudly proclaiming that a British film had outdone American flicks like War of the Worlds and Them. Uh, The horror content was noted as being extreme and not suitable for children. In the U.S., the film was also praised, with Don Levy's Quatermass being favorably received compared to the scientist heroes of other films of the time, and Richard Wordsworth's performance as Karoon being favorably compared to Karloff as the Frankenstein monster. Hammer's 
market research in the wake of the film's success told them that it was the horror content that audiences had responded to, not the science fiction content. Work on a sequel started right away, but was hampered when the irked Nigel Neal refused permission uh, for the film to use the Quatermass character unless they adapted his sequel, Quatermass 2, as the film. So Hammer's original idea for the sequel became the unrelated X the Unknown. Neil's TV sequel, Quatermass 2, became the Hammer movie sequel, Quatermass 2. And the other two movies that Hammer made in 1956 would be the drama Women Without Men and the horror film The Curse of Frankenstein. So the lesson they learned from this movie was that three out of four movies they made the next year would be horror movies. So a lot of hammer to come. Absolutely. Well, call me a nail, because I'm excited. What? Because hammer? Oh, okay. I was like, what does nails have to do with excited? <laughs> I thought it was really clever. Listeners, you can tweet us to tell us if you thought it was very <laughs> clever. Today, the Quatermass Experiment is available on DVD from MGM and Blu-ray from Kino Lorber. Well, folks, hopefully you can find a copy and watch along. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss the Quartermass Experiment from 1955, directed by Val Guest. See you on the other side, everybody. back to Screen Scene. We just finished watching The Quatermass Experiment from 1955, directed by Val Guest. Ben, what did you think of this? I really enjoyed this, Sarah. I can see why it made such a splash in 1955. Yes, it was really good. It was really interesting how I could see parallels to prior horror movies. Sure. Whether they were intentionally done or not. Mm. Um, I think in some cases they were, in some it just is happenstance. Um, but yes, I also very much enjoyed this. Yeah, absolutely. So we've talked about the story a bit, both the television version and then like the changes that were made for adaptation. But let's sort of from the beginning go through the story for the film version. From the top. Uh, well, I guess from the top down, because a mm. rocket crashes. Yes. <laughs> um, the film opens with this rocket ship crashing in the British countryside, and a documentary-style approach of, you know, the fire department coming, the police department coming, the bigwigs from the government and Ministry of Defense coming, as well as a group called the British American Rocket Group, led by Bernard Quatermass. And we learn that Quatermass is a play-by-his-own-rules kind of American scientist. Um, when Ben was talking about the way that the film made Quatermass American in order to follow Lippert's recommendations, I was assuming that it was going to be like a young American hero type. Mm. But no, this is like a, 
an older, like, stepped out of film noir, only he's a scientist, not a PI, kind of grizzled man. Yeah, I mean, I told you he was, like, 50 years old. Yeah, but, like, I, for you sure, got something for sure. in your head. I can see why, even in America, his character was considered, like, fresh and different from the hero scientists of American sci-fi films. Because, well, because hero isn't really an apt word to describe him most of the time. Yeah. He also has, like, no love interest. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's it's cool. It's definitely, like, a fresh change. Um, so, Quartermass managed to remote control the rocket ship to come back down to Earth um, because it had actually been out of contact for about 50 hours. Yeah, and the reason nobody knew about this rocket ship is because he didn't actually have permission to launch it. He just went ahead and did it. Because science. Yeah. When it launched on board, there were three astronauts, Victor Karun, Reichenheim, and Green. Um, but only Karun is recovered, and he's in real bad shape. Now we do get to meet a few other characters. Uh, we get to meet Karun's wife, Judith, the rocket group physician, Briscoe, and Quartermass's assistant, Marsh. Now Karun is taken to um, like rocket group's headquarters to be looked over by the physician. Um, he is like clearly in shock, is like shaking, and the only thing he can mutter is, help me. We also get to meet an Inspector Lomax, who is from Scotland Yard, and he is on the case to investigate what happened to those other two astronauts. Mm -hmm. And he explains, you know, I'm a, a biblical man, a very logical man, and if three men go up and only one comes back down, to me that says murder. Right. <laughs> so I'm here to investigate that. Quatermass is not super into that. He sees this as like a rocket group internal affair um, because this was his experiment and the experiment is continuing. And he's like, you know, doctors, these Scotland Yard guys, they don't know anything about space. They won't know what questions to ask, what to think about, um, for what could have caused this. So like, they're too close-minded. Now, during the investigation of, you know, what happened on the ship and everything, we do see that Karun is being treated by Briscoe, Judith is by his side, and he has, um, like, pretty bad, like, scarring on his skin, or just some kind of mutation happening on his skin. He is conscious, but it is not responsive, and is just kind of glaring and staring straight ahead. They do find some organic material on the rocket ship. Now, they know it's not plant material, but it's either animal or human. Now, they do have some film footage from a surveillance camera, basically, on board the flight. And in watching that, Quartermass and Womax see that some kind of unseen being entered the ship, pretty much dissolved Reichenheim and Green in their spacesuits, and then possessed Karun in some sort of manner. At least, this is the theory that Quatermass has come up with. With some further investigation on Karun, Dr. Briscoe uh, is like, yeah, it's like his body is mutating, his face is changing shape, and Lomax actually found, uh, with like fingerprint technology, that Karun's fingerprints are different now. Uh, they don't even look human. Um... Karun's condition worsens, 
And so Quartermass is like, okay, fine, we'll take him to the hospital. But no one is allowed to see him. And Judith, you're getting on my nerves, so you're not even allowed to see him. Um, Judith doesn't do too well with this and ends up hiring a PI to get Karoon out of the hospital. There's about a, you know, a couple minute window where Karoon is left alone and he seems to gain some kind of like consciousness and slams his hand down onto a cactus, like a decorative cactus. You know, instead of bringing flowers for the room, they brought a cactus. Um, and it's as if the cactus form morphs onto his hand. So he's hiding it as the PI is getting him out, and he ends up attacking the PI, um, just hitting him over the head, killing him. But Judith manages to get Karun out, they're driving away, and Karun seems to be torn about, like, want to hurt Judith, but Judith's wife hmm. can't hurt Judith. Reveals his, like, hand and transformation. She's screaming, and he runs out of the car. So now he's on the run in London. Briscoe, Lomax, and Quatermass are on the case, though. Um, they see the PI's body, and basically what happened was, like, half of his face looks like a skull, and it's as if the life had actually been, like, drained out of him in that single hit. Yeah, like, his hands look like deflated balloons yeah. of hands. Yeah, it looks like just somehow the life force was sucked out of him. He took a lot of necrotic damage. <laughs> now we get uh, kind of an on-the-run series of events. First... Karun goes to a chemist, and he is, like, pulling materials off the shelf, and the chemist has his hands on his, on his hips being like, Sir, you just can't do these things. Oh, are you in pain? Like, are you all right? Let me be a pharmacist and try to help you. Oh, no, he's attacking me. The chemist is killed um, in pretty much the exact same way that we see that the PI has been killed. When... Quatermass and Lomax and Briscoe get to the scene, they notice that Karun was trying to create an elixir that would basically kill himself, um, like commit suicide. And they're like, huh, that's weird. Karun doesn't know anything about chemistry. And Briscoe goes, no, Karun didn't. And that's the only implication that we really get about that multiple consciousness yeah, thing. thing from the TV show. Yeah. yeah, that's that's yeah exactly. That's the only thing. Next, uh, Karun finds like a ship, like a little boat on a river to sleep in, and he's awoken by a little girl playing outside. And we don't learn this girl's name, but I'm just going to call her Maria. Yeah, no kidding. Um, she's having a little fake tea party with her doll. He comes out and he's looking like death. Like he does not look good. Yeah, and she's like. Oh, I thought the sounds you were making were rats. Well, do you want to join me and my dolly for some tea and some some crumpets? Yeah, like, taking out any kind of sci-fi context from this, like, because Karun's, like, trying to keep his weird, horrible cactus hand, like, under wraps, right? So, like, this is, like, a six-year-old girl playing at the banks of, like, a river with her doll when, like, a seemingly starving definitely diseased, like, um, derelict, homeless person comes out of a boat towards her, and her response is like, play tea with us! <laughs> like, 
<laughs> Your mom needs to teach you a better job of not talking to strangers, little Listen, girl. Listen, stranger danger didn't come around until like the 80s or 90s. Like, <laughs> this girl doesn't know any better. Luckily, the only casualty here is her doll getting whacked to pieces. She's fine. Karun is still on the run. Next, he takes refuge in a zoo. So, you know, the typical, like, see all the animals in the zoo, zookeepers wrapping up for the day. Um, next morning, they find that many of the animals are dead in some sort of brutal attack. Clearly, they are dead in the same way as the PI and the chemist, etc. Um, but there are some new pieces of information that we learn. First, is that there seems to be almost like a, like a slime trail. Right. Um, that Karun leaves behind. Second is they find, like, a piece of Karun that has, like, fallen off or something like that, and they take it back to the lab for analysis. Yeah, I think it's, like, a mouse that he tried to absorb that he didn't quite, like... Finish. Finish before he left, so now it's just this, like, wriggling, slimy, hairy blob thing. Yeah, back at the lab, um... It happens to feed on more mice and is growing in this container. And they're like, okay, so this thing, like, is intelligent and, like, doesn't just immediately eat. It waits till it's hungry and needs to eat. It, like, triples in size when it does so. And it has these spores that it's going to release. Um, its life cycle from, like, for lack of a better word, birth to reproduction is... Um, within a very short amount of time. Now, this specimen is in the lab. It eventually, like, tries to escape and dies before it can eat more rats. And the special effects used with it are really cool. It, it, it somehow manages to be, like, a pulsating blob while also being, like, looking like it has crackly skin. Mm -hmm. It's really cool. Mm -hmm. But I would say that when it dies, it's about the size of, like... I don't know, like a smushed cat? <laughs> yeah, like a small rug. Yeah. <laughs> Just next to your bear rug on the floor. Um, but it, it Karun's eyes pretty quickly, so they're like, okay, well, Karun must be, like, not just a man now, like, with the speed of growth. Yeah, and, like, we get a glimpse of him in the shadows at the zoo, and it's clear that, like, something, something's going wrong there. He's more blob than man now. <laughs> Twisted, Twisted and, and evil. Finally, we come to Westminster Abbey, where the BBC is setting up to do uh, like a documentary-style thing on the um, restoration work going on at the Abbey. This honestly felt almost like parody to me. It's like the host is like Sir Lionel Dean or something. It's like some <laughs> like middle-aged knight like droning on about like restoring the like painting work and stuff and it just felt like someone was having like a little bit of fun like at the BBC's expense almost. Yeah. Um now the crew, like the production crew, end up calling the police because someone who was on the scaffold died and fell to the floor. He was dead before he hit the floor. So they're like, oh shit, okay, let's call the police, get let's get this sorted out. But, uh, Sir Dean, are you, do you feel up to continuing the production? Oh, yes, of course. We must continue the production. Yeah, the show must go on and all that. Stiff upper lip. Oh, Just boy. keep shooting around the dead body. Yeah. 
eventually our team, Lomax, Briscoe, and Cratermass, arrive, and um, one of the cam- so they have like three cameras on this documentary crew, and um, they're looking up at the archway, and camera one tilts up and then sees this horrific being, um, 20 feet wide, kind of tentacly, a mix of man and animal with like a single glowing eye, kind of like octopusy. Yeah, like imagine, hmm. Imagine what you want monster from the ocean floor to look like. It's, it's like this big like human eye. If the eye was like the clitoris of this like vulva mouth. <laughs> That like then like spills into a bunch of like tentacles and is oh part of like God. a big oozing blob. So cross Georgia O'Keefe with Salvador Dali. Sure. <laughs> so the production team gets the fuck out of there just in time as our just as our team arrives and they're like, okay, fuck, what do we do? Like, do we blow up the abbey? Do we use flamethrowers? And Dr. Briscoe's like, no, that's just going to spread the spores even further. Quatermass is like, ah, he's on metal scaffolding. Let's electrocute him. Um, so they do that. They set things up. And the fact that, like, okay, so, like, Lomax is, like, there helping set up. And he's in the abbey. And this thing is right above them. And it's going into a little bit of a, um, a stasis mode because it's about to release its spores. And he's just, like, fast walking while everyone else is running. Like, they've set stuff up, and everyone's running out of the building, and he's just, like, briskly walking like there's no problem in the world, like... No, Sarah, he's he's British. He's briskly walking. There's a lot of problems in the world. (laughs) If everything was fine, he would stop to admire the great restoration work being done here at the Abbey. Oh, boy. Um, so they electrocute the thing, and, uh... Or, sorry, not the thing. Um, they electrocute what Karun has become... It, like, goes into flames, whatever. Quatermass goes in, admires the handiwork that the electricity <laughs> has done, and then briskly exits, ignoring everyone, going, like, oh, is it safe? Like, is it okay? What's going on? And he only stops to answer to his assistant, Marsh, who's outside. And Marsh asks, what, what are we going to do now, sir? Quatermass says, the same thing we do every night, Marsh. Try to take over space. The Pinky and the Brain. Yes, Pinky and the Brain. One is a genius, the other's insane. Yeah, he says, we're going to start again. Yes, and as he walks off in the center of the frame, it dissolves to a rocket ship going out. So not only is he going to start again, he has achieved starting again with a new rocket ship out into space. That's right. The end. So there's a lot that I like about this movie. Yes. I don't think that there's anything that I disliked about the movie. There were things that I was like, come on. Like the briskly walking instead sure. of running. Just like little things where I was just like, come on, guys. But what did you like about the movie? I think the first thing that you notice watching this movie, or at least my big takeaway watching, is that it feels like the people making it wanted it to be good. Yes. They wanted to put the effort into it to make it good. Yeah. They weren't like, oh, a horror movie or a sci-fi movie. They weren't like, oh, this is like a BBC classic and treated it with like special gloves on a silver platter. Or they also weren't like, you know, 
ah, this is some cheap crap to get out by Monday afternoon. Like, let's, we got two hours to shoot this thing. I think we can do it in an hour and a half. Like, yeah. you know, it, it feels like it's been a while since we've had a movie that was made by people who wanted it to be good and had the skills to make it so. And time. The cinematography is really successful at getting across that gritty, realistic feeling. I think a big part of that is when we're outside, we're mostly on location, mm-hmm. you know, in gritty London streets. Um, and if it's nighttime, we're shooting really at night, um, which really helps to make it feel like real events that are happening, right? Because, like, nothing, I think, gives you the it's just a movie feeling faster than, like, if we're on streets and it's clearly a back lot, or if it's the dead of night and we can see the sun in the sky and you've just tinted everything blue. Yeah, absolutely. I think that low budget or not, you know, you already mentioned this, but the creature effects really worked for me. Um, starting from the makeup effects on Karoon all the way through to the big pulsating blob monster at the end. And maybe it's because, like, the black and white helps disguise any, like, fakeness a bit. Because um, it kind of helps disguise, like, material. But also, I think it's really helped by the fact that the creature doesn't really need to look like anything in particular other than gross. Yeah. So, you know, I was very impressed. Yeah, I wish that at the climax it had been able to move more. Um, I mean, they lampshade it with, like, it's preparing to release its spores. Mm-hmm. Um, it moves, but it doesn't really threaten anyone at the end. It's just kind of perched up there on the scaffold waiting to be killed. Yeah. Um, in close-ups... When it's up on the scaffold, you can see it pulsating and and being really gross and creepy. But in the long shots, he's is he is just kind of like hanging out there. Um, before we get to the Yabby, though, as Karun is morphing, mm. and between like a man shape and the octopus kind of shape we get at the Abbey, the film is really good at like knowing. What not to show us. For sure. And knowing what to show us. Absolutely. Like, we see, like, bits of, like, trailing gunk uh, leaving behind that slime trail. We see Karun's eyes out of a bush uh, as he goes to attack the animals. We get, uh, I didn't mention this, but we get kind of a cool point of view shaky cam shot that Ben kind of described in the context setting as Karun is leaving the bush and heading towards, like, the lions or... Mm-hmm. Um, the tigers or the bears, oh my. That was really interesting. And, you know, movies that have, like, the creatures on the run, here's him doing X, Y, and then Z, mm-hmm. can feel a little repetitive, even in the context of that movie itself, because it's like, here here he is um, threatening a chemist, here he is threatening a little girl, mm-hmm. and now here he is threatening animals. But in each time... There's something different that's keeping you engaged. And with the zoo, it was very much engaging because of the change of point of view from the camera. Yeah, whenever, like, that scene in particular was one of the ones that made me think, like, oh, they wanted to make this good. Because they were taking the time to do something different, right? And, I mean, doing a POV shot isn't the most, like, innovative thing on the planet, but it requires you to stop... And say, oh, you know what would be cool here? A POV shot, which is an amount of time that, you know, not all these movies are willing to spend. (laughs) If I had 
one criticism of the movie, it would be that I think the ending's a little weak. Mm-hmm. From what I can understand, the TV ending seems a bit weak, too. But I think some sort of mix of the two would have been best. Because ultimately, I can understand why, like, oh, I'm just going to talk the monster to death wasn't going to work. Especially given how much they changed Quatermass's personality, where, like, he's not this, like, philosophical, thoughtful guy who's going to, you know, appeal to the human within the monster. Because the sense we get of the Quatermass in this movie is that he doesn't really give a shit about other human beings. Well, he's like... I don't know if he actually says this, but I feel like in his mind, what's happened to Karun is fine and not his fault because Karun knew what he signed up for. Yeah, absolutely. And we can talk a little bit more about Quatermass in a moment, but... On the other hand, this ending where the creature's just, you know, like we said, perched on the scaffolding, isn't really actively threatening anything, and they're like, well, let's electrocute it. And they're like, cool. They, like, call up Battersea Power Station. They're like, can you give us all you got? And they're like, yeah. And they're like, great. And then they, like, take a wire, like a cable, and they just push it into the metal, and, and the whole thing goes up in flames. And they're like, well, that was done. Like, there's... It's just, they just do it, and so there's not, like, a lot of really suspense there. And I feel like, you know, dramatically it's a little bit inert, too, because the tragedy of Karun becoming this horrible thing kind of gets, like, lost at a certain point. You know, the movie's very good at, like, getting us to feel that this guy's, like, a person who is trapped under there somewhere, like... And uh, Wordsworth gives a really good performance to help keep that in mind. But then, like... As soon as his man shape is gone, it's just... He's just a monster. And the characters just treat him like a monster. And we never see, like, Judith again after he smashes his way out of that car. Even though, like, she's still alive. She's in, like, shock or whatever. It's implied she's gone mad from the experience. Sure. But, like, once she's out of the way, it's almost like people just stop thinking of him as a person. Yeah. And so I feel like... Something of the TV show's ending where the tragedy of this lost humanity is brought to the fore combined with, you know, the more action-packed, hey, we got to electrocute him thing. You know, something really tragic where we had to almost like, you know, we, we have to appeal to the humanity of the creature to get it to come into the trap where we're going to electrocute it, you know? We've got like Judith being like, come on, Victor, like, we can still love each other. Like, things can be how they were or whatever. And, like, crying as, like, the thing, like, horrifically slobs its way forward towards us and then just, like, into the pit where we're going to kill it. Yeah. You know, something like that. Yeah, I I mean, like, I see what you're saying with the changes to Quatermass's personality, but I think Briscoe would have been, like, a really good substitute Sure, sure. I think it was interesting about how there were a lot of side what I'll call one scene characters Mm. Um, because it made it feel like this was like a very large city, a lot of people involved. Right. It didn't have that like American B movie problem of like, these are the only four people in the world. Yeah. I will say though, like usually when it's such a big, a large amount of people that we see on screen, not necessarily cast, we're like the body count must be up. Mm. I think only about six people die in this movie, including mm. Karun himself. Yeah. So, you know, the body count isn't, like, up there. But I I didn't mind that. I feel like from a modern standpoint, I wish 
the body count was higher. I wish someone had gotten killed in the Abbey towards the end. Um, I feel like if it wasn't for the fact that, like, I know this movie came out in time to promote the sequel that was coming out on TV, I would have said that, like, dramatically Quatermass should have died as, like, if this was an American movie, he would have died because the production code would have insisted upon it because it's Quatermass's fault that, like, Garoon became this horrific, mm-hmm. you know, thing. But something there, because I do think that it kind of, like, evens off towards the end. Um, I also think there are some moments where you wish the camera had, like, lingered on some things a little bit more than it does. Yeah. But I do think that, like, seeing this movie in the context of 1955 it's easier to understand, like, why this caused such a sensation. You can appreciate where it's pushing boundaries a bit more. Absolutely. Um, it's gore effects. Gore isn't really the right word, but um, when we see, like, the skull on the yeah. PI's face or the chemist's face, like, it's really well done. Yeah, I mean, that's the stuff that I wish we got to see a little bit more of, but yeah. it's, like, way past anything in any other movie we're seeing around this time in terms of showing us the horrific. So I can understand why it's, like, cut a little close. Yeah, and even the attacks themselves are quite short and brutal. Mm, that's true. And I appreciated that. The revised version of Quatermass is, like, a really fascinating character to make the protagonist of one of these movies. Mm-hmm. Especially with this ending. Like, an American audience at the time would be like, Quatermass is triumphant, like, he's going to continue <laughs> being, like, Howard Hughes and powering through, blah, 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 this genius visionary. But then there's, like, throughout the whole movie, a consistent theme of, like, is he going too far? Is Quatermass the villain? Yeah, there's always characters who are approaching him and being like, you can't do these things, Quatermass. And, like, he's very to the point, he's very no-nonsense, he's very focused on what he is doing. And it renders him nearly totally unsympathetic. Yeah. But he's, like, our main character. But he just, he's unconstrained by rules or politeness. And I think that aspect of him is one of the things that makes him feel very quintessentially American. Yeah. Next to all these British people. Um, like, it's almost like this version of Quatermass would have to be American. Because, like, all the people in the cast are just like... Quite a mess. You you can't do these things. And he's just why why not? I just did. <laughs> um, in, you know, it's kind of like seeing Hugh Laurie become House, mm. where he's just like this big dick, very American because <laughs> of this American accent he's putting on, and he's your main character. Um, and it's not quite an antihero type of deal. But, like, it's it's in that vein, because he's almost like, well, what if the mad scientist was the hero of the movie? Yeah. You know? And I think, ironically, Quatermass is closer to what a real rocket scientist in 1955 was probably like than most of the scientists we see in these movies. Because I think, roughly, in sci-fi movies of this time, you can kind of put the scientist characters into one of three categories. They're either, you know, Frankensteins. Where it's like, <laughs> ah, they called me mad, but I'll show them, I'll show them all. Or they're like, um, you know, sweet old men, uh, oh, absent-minded. like the Boris Karloff kind of thing? No, like absent-minded professor kind of types. Yeah. Like the, the dad in Them or um, 
the scientist in Forbidden Planet or something where it's like, oh, you know, I've been thinking so long and hard about science and, and, and things, and here are my long-winded thoughts about philosophy and, and science and so forth. And I feel like that's what Quatermass was on the TV show. And then, like, the third kind of scientist we tend to get is like, Hi, I'm Brad Roberts. I'm a scientist. I study science. Come, Jane. We'll shoot the monster with bullets. Because science. And this Quatermass is none of those. He's just like this middle-aged guy who doesn't give a shit about you if you aren't directly relevant to whatever he's doing right now. Um, It's like if Reed Richards didn't go on the Fantastic Four rocket, and then the rocket came back down after they got all the cosmic radiation. And he has to go hunt down Ben Grimm. Right, exactly. Like, that's what this movie (laughs) is. Um, This is a guy for whom literally nearly causing Earth to be overrun by a horrific alien life form comes across as, like, an annoying speed bump on the road to the stars. Like, it's like, great, is the horrible alien menace dead? Mop it up. We're back to work on Monday. You know, like... <laughs> the music is really good. Yeah. It was really dope. Uh, really great at tone setting. I, it was nice. You know, I'm I'm a fan of scores that end up usually carrying the movie. Oh, sure. I.e. Star Wars. But, like, it was nice to have a movie where the music was very much supporting what was going on screen. I'm just thinking of, like... Creature from the Black Lagoon, where you had the horn section going, bah, 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 bah. right? And you don't really have that here no. in the same. Like you have like the violins, string quartet going, right? But not, bah, 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 bah. yeah. I think that's like a very. It feels like a very British versus American kind of thing. Maybe, um, I think where the emphasis is because. At least in this example, Creature from the Black Lagoon is a monster movie, whereas this is, like, there's a monster, but it's, like, a horror movie. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not so much like the monster's going to come out and get you. It's like, oh, shit, where is the monster? Sure. And there's just, like, a horror to what's happening. Like, the horror in the Quatermass Experiment is kind of that, like, Lovecraftian existential horror where you're not necessarily like afraid of like this particular monster coming to get you. Like you don't walk away from the call of Cthulhu being like, Oh, Cthulhu might be under my bed or whatever. It's the horror of like just the very concept being like such a horrific notion that it unsettles you. Yeah. And then that's why it's like, well, Quatermass is like, Still going back up there. Yeah, yeah. That's why the ending is an ambiguous ending. The ending is not meant to be a triumphant, like, well, we defeated the monster. Now to space. It's meant to be like, huh. Maybe you shouldn't be doing this, guys. Yeah, especially the way it's shot with, like, Marsh coming up to him and him being like, we start again in the morning. And then we, we have a shot of Quatermass just, like, walking into the distance alone. alone. Yeah, exactly. The movie presents Quatermass as, it sort of feels like it's saying, this is not a good person. Yeah. But hard times call for hard men. And like, if we're going to get anywhere and if we're going to progress and we're going to go to space and we're going to do amazing things, you need guys like Quatermass who are kind of willing to just do it 
and not let like the questions of should we do it get in the way. Yeah. Yeah, like it's <laughs> I hesitate because like that really bothers me on a personal level uh in terms of like how the world should work, but I yes, that is what the movie is positing. Yeah, and that's why like I said I think Quatermass feels more realistic to the kind of people who were working you know, in the military industrial complex or whatever in the 1950s than what we tend to get in these movies. Yeah. Now, I compared the Quartermass experiment to Creature from the Black Lagoon. Okay. Um, I wanted to note some other horror parallels. Sure. So, easy parallel, sympathetic monster like what we see in Frankenstein and Wolfman. Mm Mm-hmm. Or, as we like to say, if you want to make a good horror movie, make it sad. Right. Uh, Frankenstein and Maria. Mm-hmm. The Thing. Yeah, I think The Thing and from another world. Uh, the electrocution, the, like, weird plantness yeah, of the, the monster. The plantness, like, with the spores, okay, but I think the plantness really is more rooted in the cereal. Um, but I think, like, that idea of the plant alien is still in there for sure yeah and the the notion that like oh the spores will spread this thing around the globe and that's why it's a big deal even though this story is about just one of these things and then when they were doing the manhunt Mm. uh, i was really reminded of invisible man sure i can understand that especially given the like scotland yardiness of it all yeah like there's um a ton of people scouring the city side and the countryside trying to find even like these little like blobs of him that are just like off randomly. Um, in addition to finding the the main thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the last movie that I wanted to bring up, even though it's in the future and I haven't seen it is the blog. Oh, sure. Yeah. Fair. Yeah. But I, I mean, I haven't seen it. All I know is from what I've seen of clips and it like, attacks you and dissolves you or something? Yeah, the blob will will eat you. But, like, there's no human dimension to it. Okay. Um, So... It's just a blob. Okay. It's like a gelatinous cube. And they defeat it by freezing. Yes. But, um, I feel like by the end of Quartermass Experiment, they're treating the the thing formerly known as Karoon as, like... A blob-like creature rather than that human thing, which we've already talked about. Yeah. Do you want to move on to ranking? Yeah, for sure. I don't know where you were thinking, um, but I kind of just have a spot. I have a range if we need to discuss it, but I feel pretty confident about this one spot. Okay, well, let me tell you my range, and we'll see if your spot falls in my range, because then life will be easy. (laughs) Wouldn't that be nice in (laughs) 2020? So I started looking by trying to go find La Diabolique. Sure. Um, just as a point of comparison. And we've got La Diabolique at number 15 on the list. And above it, we've got movies like The Body Snatcher and Son of Frankenstein and Isle of the Dead. Stuff which I all feel strongly is better than The Quatermass Experiment in the realm of being a horror film. Okay. Because um, I think The Quatermass Experiment's a really good movie, um, but it's sort of this, like, combo, you know, horror sci-fi, sure, but also, like, thriller, procedural... Mystery. ...kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, below La Diabolique, we have Frankenstein, which is one of the movies you directly compared to it. 
And I thought there was maybe a chance that Frankenstein was better than the Quatermass experiment because Maria gets killed. Sure. Making my way down from there and looking at things, there's some other movies we compared it to, you know, Thing from Another World. And, you know, it's it's like, okay, there's some really good iconic stuff in here. Nosferatu, Creature from the Black Lagoon, uh, Night of the Hunter. And then below Night of the Hunter is Mad Love. I was like, this is better than Mad Love. Because, like, end of the day, Mad Love's pretty silly. <laughs> like, Mad Love's, like, pretty silly. Um, and I think Quatermass Experiment does itself a really good favor by taking itself seriously yes. and recognizing that the way to make this story work is by taking itself seriously. You know, because otherwise the thing at the end could have been really goofy. Yeah, I completely agree. So my floor is number 29 below Night of the Hunter, above Mad Love. And my ceiling is number 16 below La Diabolique and above Frankenstein. Okay. So my spot is just slightly above. I was thinking it would replace La Diabolique at 15. Okay. So why were you thinking this is better than La Diabolique? Well, I remember having to convince you about the Diabolique being a horror movie. That's true. Whereas there's no need for convincing. Sure, there's here. other genre stuff going on, but like this is clearly a horror movie. Yeah. Um even just the like willingness to show the horror throughout. The Diabolique has some pretty brutal scenes, mainly when they are killing the dude. Um, when he's first held underwater and then when he's rising out at the end. But then it's like, oh, he's alive, it's fine. Whereas in Quatermass experiment, like, you see the skulls, you see, like, weird skin blob thing. The thing I will give Quatermass experiment is that it's, it's you know, like La Diabolique and like a lot of Universal movies, it's one of these movies with, like, not a lot of, like, denouement, right? Like, what happened to Briscoe? What happens to Karun's wife? What happens... Like, it doesn't care. But, unlike a lot of those movies, the lack of denouement feels motivated by the story because the ending is about that Quatermass doesn't care about any of that shit. It's like, cool, that problem's done, let's make another rocket. So I, I do like that better than La Diabolique's ending where, you know, the cop sort of appears from out of the shadows and is like, ha-ha, you're caught, here's how I caught you, all right, we're done. Yeah, yeah. I do like that the chick at the end of La Diabolique is, like, haunting the school. Sure. With, like, that kid. Yeah, that was pretty good. Um, but, yeah, I feel like the Quatermass Experiment is a stronger horror movie than La Diabolique. But I would not put it above, like, The Body Snatcher, Son of Frankenstein, Isle of the Dead. Sure. Yeah, I think I was thinking of La Diabolique as better because I think on a filmmaking level... I think it's more accomplished. Okay. I think La Diabolique is a better made film. Quatermass Experiment is very good, but there are certainly still... It's not on the Criterion list. Sure. <laughs> it's also like there are still points where it betrays its kind of origins as like a low-budget sci-fi B-movie kind of thing, right? Like it, it really exceeds those origins in a lot of places, but there are certainly still spots where you can feel it. Where you can feel like how in the hands of someone lesser, this would have just been like another like Poverty Row, like crappy, like B-movie thing. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of where I was. 
uh, and why I was thinking La Diabolique was better. But I think I'm willing to go along with you on it being the better horror film. One thing that I really liked about Quatermass Experiment is that there's very little comic relief in it. There is a little bit of comic relief in this movie. There's yeah. a whole rigmarole with like a um, alcoholic homeless woman who spots the thing that was Karoon uh, and reports it to the cops. And they're like, ah, oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's Crazy Mary or whatever. Um, but it doesn't go on so long that you're like, oh, come on, please. You know? Um, whereas yeah. like La Diabolique has like a lot of like goofy comic relief stuff. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm willing to go with you on this one. Okay, cool. So entering the list at the new number 15 below the body snatcher and above La Diabolique is the Quatermass experiment from 1955 directed by Val Guest. One thing I forgot to mention about this movie is it starts with teens. That's true. Making out. That's true. Running up to a haystack to make out in the haystack. That's and true. then the rocket comes. And they're in her front yard, basically. Yeah, her her dad's a farmer and it crashes in a farm. Yeah. I just think that's interesting to note. Sure. I, I don't mean this in a weird way, but these horror movies are making me think about teenagers and the role that they are playing right now. And sure, in society and, and the, the rise of the teenager as a yeah. demographic. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not just sitting here thinking about teenagers. I'm thinking about these like, <laughs> other things, too. <laughs> if you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find the links to the other films we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr. You can reach out over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com, or... Chat with us on Twitter at underscore Scream Scene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Or you can listen to the show on whatever podcasting app you prefer if you subscribe to our RSS feed. You can help the show out by leaving us a rating or a review on the podcasting app of your choice, by sharing the show with those you know on social media or from six feet away, or, if you have the means, you can head on over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast and become a financial supporter of the show by signing up for as little as a dollar a month to become a patron of the night. Patrons at the 5 and $10 level get access to regular bonus content, including our weekly bonus audio cut from our episodes, uh, whether that's like jokes that didn't land or research <laughs> that turned out not to be like super relevant or like other just like cut content that goes up every monday right now we are pushing to get to 150 dollars a month by our 150th week on patreon we have seven weeks to go and we would love to reach our goal of 150 dollars a month when once we reach that goal we will start doing a fifth episode every month on horror adjacent movies like clue Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Or maybe we can find out why that triangle had four sides. Oh, yeah. So help us get... Sorry, I got... I was, like, thinking about... I was like that gif of that woman with the equations. <laughs> so if you'd like to help us reach $150 by 150 weeks, head on over to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast. So, Ben, what are we watching next week? Next week, Sarah, we're watching one of the strangest horror movies ever made. 
the dialogueless dementia. Is it called the dialogue? No, it's just called dementia. So it's like a silent movie. It has no dialogue. Okay, but it's from 1955. Right. Okay, I've never heard of this. Yes. Correct. <laughs> You're being so coy. It's it's probably one of the most unique horror films we will take a look at for the show. Oh, is it an art film? Yeah. It's so it's, it's, it's going to like ex- be next to like House of Usher then. It's experimental. Yeah, so next to House of Usher then. Yeah. All right. Well, we will see you then, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.